Welcome to Lessons from the Healing Field, an ongoing journey from head to heart with Dr. Howard E. Richmond. Hello, hello. I am Deborah Louise Brown, and it is my pleasure to be here on this wonderful evening getting ready to talk about some amazing stuff with my good friend, Dr. H. Are you with me? I am here and ready, Deb. Good to be here with you now. <laughs> and when I say, are you with me, you know what I mean. This is a this is a journey we're taking together, fl- literally flying by the seat of our pants and having a great time, don't you think? It's wonderful. I would rather be doing <laughs> uh, nothing else but this. Oh, wow, that's awesome. All right, well, today what we decided to talk about is getting out of your head and into your heart or being out of your mind and into your heart. And um, I just think that is such a compelling concept. So I know your passion is teaching others how to shift from autopilot mode to what you call conscious pilot mode and to integrate our whole being, that whole body, mind, spirit, beautiful being that we are, in a direction of joy and well-being. Can you talk to me some more about that? That seems like a big passion, big, big time. So I I say to people, Deb, that like uh, in airplanes, autopilot is fine. It's great, except for takeoffs, landings, mountains, and turbulence. And in life, when we're in autopilot mode, that can be fine too, except when we're in conflict and conflict that gets us stuck in, in a ditch, we tend to react automatically reaction mode, what I call autopilot. Um, We get tense. We have stories that flood our conscious mind. We get an emotional charge. That's our reaction. That's autopilot mode. And I like to teach people that when we're aware of our autopilot reaction mode, that's the um, least optimal time to maneuver um, out of our flight path. So when we can go to what I call conscious pilot, and that is to take a st- one little step out of reaction mode, starting with a breath, starting with decreasing some tension in our body, taking a breath that goes... When we reduce the tension of our autopilot or our reaction mode, now we get some bonus room. We get some space with our body and our breath, and we could get unraveled from the reaction that tightens our body, that closes our mind, and that we get stuck in an emotional uh, charge. So it's another version of it's simply complex. The simple part is, We go from autopilot to conscious pilot, and then we take a new flight path out of disaster. So it's sort of like that. And well-being. I was just going to say that it's like that mayday, mayday thing that we talked about in a previous um, episode, where um, you can you can call mayday, mayday, and something has to be uh, available to you (laughs) to you know to get you out of disaster. Right. So. Right. We can't, we can't always wait for somebody to rescue us uh, when we do the May Day. What we can do is be prepared by practicing this in advance, 
so that when we need this knowledge, when we need these tools, when we have this awareness, then uh, we can get out of our um, autopilot uh, prison mode and then and then shift uh, into conscious pilot. And things look very different when we have more uh, space. So it's really going from the tension and dis-ease into a space of grace and ease. And it takes work, and the work pays off, going from tension and dis-ease into that space of grace and ease. Well, sometimes people refer to grace when they're talking about spirituality. So let's hold that thought for a moment. And I want to say this, that, and that is this, that stress happens, life happens, death and loss happen. How do we keep it all together and keep that grace? And so what is the role of spirituality in this constant ebb and flow, this constant you know, traveling hopefully in, in joy and well-being, or traveling in it or to it or you know, around it? I mean, sometimes we just can't get there from here, it seems like. So how do we keep it all together? It's a great question, and the sages have been discussing this over millennia, and so um, how do we deal with uh, all of the things of life, the the stress, uh, loss, death, and where does spirituality uh, play in? So what what I've seen um, throughout my career as a psychiatrist who does therapy and uh, goes into the basement of people's subconscious and helps to turn the light on, um, what I have seen is when we don't get out of that tension, uh, autopilot mode, um, we're blocking spirituality. So one way to look at spirituality is when we unravel the uh, the, the things that keep us tied up, uh, the stories, for example, the stories in our mind of disaster, uh-oh, this, 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 and this. Our, our mind play, pays attention to those stories um, that are very compelling, and we tend to believe it as if it's fact or truth. What I teach people is take a step out of the story. Put the story aside. Park that story. When the story is parked on the side and we put an imaginary plexiglass there uh, and we can see it, though we're no longer drawn in by the story, then we can start to decrease the tension in the very moment, like the now, decrease the tension in our body. And using our breath and our body as we decrease the tension, now the emotions, those pesky emotions, they can start to be recognized, to be validated, and then the charge to be reduced and ultimately released when we're no longer hostage to our ego mind, as I call it sometimes, when we're no longer hostage to um, the thoughts, beliefs, judgments, conclusions of the story, um, when we're no longer hostage to um, those distractions, and the emotional charge, um, because it's very compelling. And when we're able to loosen that um, tight uh, rope around us and, and untie it and open up that space, that's the space of grace and ease where mir- miracles happen. 
So um, spirituality, yeah, that can reside there. Intuition, yes, that can reside in this space. Uh, our wise inner being can come up. Whatever we call it, it's a space of grace and ease. And I have found how to get there is to get out of the entanglement that sometimes we don't even realize we're in. So the journey out is in. It's an inside job, and many of us have heard that. And this makes it uh, doable when we have a, a compass, uh, a guide, some tools, some simple steps, and we keep at it, then it's not so daunting or overwhelming. So I've also heard you talk about some of that in terms of survival mode, you know, that, that we're doing the best we can and, and we're living with the stress and the stressors and and some of it is, is maybe causing us to stay stuck and depleting our energy, which you already mentioned, you know, about the disease. And, you know, you cannot, you cannot be in dis-ease and a state of joy, I don't think, at the same time. They are, they are not... Um, they are mutually exclusive, aren't they? You can't you can't live in in joy and um, excessive stress probably at the same time, can you? No, no. As my dogs are affirming with their bark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Hey, boys, it's okay. It's okay. We'll get out of that stress and and that alarm. So they they just went into that survival mode of protection. <laughs> Uh, fear and danger, and and that's where we can get stuck in that place of uh oh, um, survival, fear, uh, something bad's going to happen. Um, joy um, can overtake that if, uh, um, and it doesn't. As you're right, it doesn't coexist at the same time because um, that survival mode tends to expel uh, our capacity for joy. As we move and shift slowly sometimes and then surely with persistence out of the survival mode, then we open up the capacity or the portal to joy. Um, and, and to me, joy means less and less tension and stress. And um, when we have less and less tension, we start to have more and more ease. And as we have more ease, there's that grace, the capacity for joy opens up, and then we're in joy and we can enjoy. We can enjoy. Well, I also know that you have coined the word thrival, thrival mode, you know, survival mode into thrival mode. And I think when we're yes. thriving, we can coexist. I mean, joy can coexist with thriving, for sure. It's it's Absolutely. very, very Absolutely. much a container, when, right? It's a container yeah. for joy. I mean, joy is a container for thriving, or vice versa. It's, it's very joyful when we thrive. Yeah. We're, we're in our, our, our um, replenishing uh, mode in our... That's where the juice is when, when we're thriving. When we're just surviving... All of the juice or energy is taken up to stay afloat, so there's little to none left to reinvest in self for nurturing, for thriving, for growing, for evolving. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. So 
consciously seeking people, and by that I mean people like you and me and people that we like to hang out with, (laughs) um, who are trying to figure this all out, um, are probably as likely as anyone to have some questions about what does it all mean? You know, what what is it all? And I know yeah. that in in the healing field, your book, your your first uh, novel that you wrote, the healing field, a young psychiatrist battle with his anorexic patient, her hunger strike against God, and their journey through the dark night of the soul. Um, this is a body, mind, spirit book. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful narrative about your your patient and yourself but you tell it as a novel and it's just an amazing story. To read for us uh, a, po- a portion where um, the young Dr. H questions what is what's on the other side so to speak. And um you can uh, it's on page 119 so you can maybe set the context for us and then read that section and we'll talk some more about this um the spirituality piece. It's beautiful. Okay, and thank you for those kind words uh, about the about the book, about the novel, and a reminder to the listeners, I would never write a story about one of my patients, and in this case, my patient implored me, um, compelled me to write this book as she started to get better, as the miracles started to happen. She said, you must write about this. It could help someone else. So um and that's why that's why I wrote it. So let me uh turn to page 119. And that wasn't 119. And here we go. Okay. So in the book my character is named Henry and this is a scene from um, when Henry was seven years old. Seven-year-old Henry threw the basketball to his brother, Jacob, a year older, slightly taller, and more athletic than him. Their cemented backyard was the site where he and Jacob tossed the ball or frisbee to one another after school. Nearby, the family parrot, Izzy, stood perched on a ledge on the outside wall of their house. Izzy's cage featured a center swing on which the beautiful bird would prance and flutter his orange and green feathers. Jacob bounced the basketball to Henry, but it slipped away from him and careened into Izzy's steel cage. Izzy and his humble home came tumbling to the ground. Izzy! Henry ran to the, Henry ran to the floored cage. He's not moving, Jacob, he shouted. Jacob sprinted in the house to get their mom. Izzy's dead, Mom whispered softly as she eyed the unmoving, silent, colorful creature. Later that evening, Henry, his mom, dad, older sister Sarah, and Jacob went to the front yard. His father brought a shovel and dug a hole in the soft dirt near the budding lemon tree, put Izzy in, and covered him. Izzy is buried now, Joe Kaplan declared to his children as he finished patting the soil with his shovel. And he's going to heaven, Mom quickly added with a confident smile. At bedtime, Henry couldn't sleep. Confused about death, he sat up in bed. 
His blue cotton pajamas, buttoned up to the collar, seemed to be choking him. Izzy died. Henry pondered the meaning. His breathing quickened. Dad had buried Izzy. When Dad died, Mom would bury him. When Mom died, Sarah would bury her. When Sarah died, Jacob would bury her. When Jacob died, Henry would bury him. All of a sudden, Henry panicked. Who will bury me? Who will bury me? With his heart racing, little Henry thought about Izzy's lifeless body in the darkness under the dirt. But didn't Mom say Izzy was going to heaven? Where could heaven be? What happened when we died? Wow. So let's take a deep breath because that's that has probably happened to so many children. <laughs> that that exact yeah. experience where you start to try to put it all together and it just doesn't track. Right? And then mom right. and dad try to try to explain to you and you either get it or you don't and you put it into your subconscious or your you even deeper than that. And then doesn't it come up every now and then in other ways that are just you know, begging to be explained, and it starts back in that part of your day or in your childhood. Does that is that it's, you find that with a lot of people? Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's universal, Deb, because um, our early um, experiences with loss will inform us later in autopilot mode. Now, so. Um, and parents, parents often are ill-prepared to deal with these topics that they haven't necessarily thought about it or know what to say to uh, to their kids, and and they usually model what they learned when they were kids. So if we stop like we are now and take a look at this, it's it's wow, it's a big issue because then all loss events that come later in life can have a an anchor to the roots of of how we navigate loss well, uh, we generally do it poorly as a culture and as a nation we're taught um replace the loss uh time heals all wounds uh just get over it messages like that that don't help one bit and actually make it worse so yeah you're absolutely right about that I just had a a friend that has had a um, a beautiful beautiful uh, dog. I'm I'm not sure it might be. Oh, I know what it was. It was a um, a white lab, a yellow lab. Excuse me. And um, they put her to sleep today. And her mm. name is Grace. And Grace. I received a text oh. message. Yes, I received a text message that Grace is at peace. And mm-hmm. I thought very carefully about what I wanted to say in my message back. And I did not send it in the group text. I wanted it just to be to my friend Jody. And I said that your family and you are in my prayers, and you will need that time to absorb the loss and legacy of your beautiful grace. Mm-hmm. And I said that because... I didn't want to just say you'll need to get another one or time will heal and all that stuff. I knew that there's more to it. I knew that mm-hmm. intuitively, and I know that that will be something that that will mean more to her mm-hmm. because, it, frankly, it would mean a lot to me. I've lost dog, uh, a dog a couple of years ago, and I thought I was going to die. <laughs> um, yeah. 
really, I did. I thought I was just going to die. And and if somebody ever said to me, um, oh, you'll get another one, I, I would have just not even been able to cope with that, uh, even though I did get another one like a week later because I couldn't live without the dog. But, <laughs> you know, but my point is, you know, it's it's um it's great to be able to tap into that heart space going deeper when you get ready to say something to somebody else. Yes. Yes. And and it's common in our society, our culture, if somebody um passes away, um a comment that's common, well he or she is in a better place. And that can give people some level of comfort and sometimes not enough because the person who loses that lo- that that loved one, um, they tend to be in pain. And our autopilot mode is to recoil from pain, push it down, uh, hide from it, don't show up in society wearing our pain because people usually kind of are repelled by that. So there are forces in autopilot mode individually and collectively that um, don't do justice to how to deal with pain, loss. So when we, I I say we we need to go through the pain, not around it, not above it, uh, not behind it, don't push it down. We need to go through that pain in a way um, that's the the healthiest and, and the most healing, and that is uh, without judging um, our reaction and allowing ourselves time to grieve. Uh, and when we do that more and we do it more better, then we're more complete with uh, the pain of a loss. And um, so that that's how I guide people to be more in conscious pilot with things like uh, loss and the, the pain of loss and, and not to just cover it up and say, okay, uh, let's move on. It's too quick. Let's stick around a little while um, so we can get some healing from that from that wound, from that pain. And uh, then we increase the capacity for joy and for fullness. Exactly. And and you mentioned a moment ago that for some people this might be God, for some people it's spirit, for some people it's intuition. And then you also mentioned the wise inner being. And all of that is the spirit piece in the mind-body-spirit uh, in the way you're talking mm-hmm. about it, right? So, So the wise inner being is well served to um study on it a little bit you know like like you said not let it let, not let it just be a fleeting moment but to actually have it inform some more deep understanding of the whole picture of why we're all here and what we're doing with each other mhm yes and and that wise inner being sometimes people um recognize that as the quote unquote higher self uh with a with a capital s um versus our ego personality self uh another word for that um wise inner being or intuition or spirit or even god another word that you know I use and that most doctors um don't use is the the word love the word love 
when we are in a state of love, to me, that means we're not in a state of, of judgment, of tension, of self-condemnation or condemnation of other. We lose our judgment and we lose our fear. When we lose our judgment and we lose our fear, to me, that's a state of grace. That's a state of love. And in that space, that's where miracles happen. ask and and it's interesting that you mention that most doctors and I would say certainly psychiatrists I would have to think don't talk about love too much in, ter- in you know when when you're trying to be in service to your client and your patient and you're like oh my goodness you know if you would just love yourself a little more it would be a lot easier <laughs> so can you even say it i mean can you say that to a person can you love yourself more or can you hate yourself more well, well, let, let's go with, yeah, hate yourself less. Um, the, the love yourself more, not everybody's ready to hear that because uh, we can cringe, especially if we're in a in a state of dis-ease or um, disgust or fear, survival mode. Um, the, the words love yourself more uh, can feel like an unwanted harpoon in our energy field. Now, on the other hand, um, if we have the awareness that we're in that state of disruption and judgment and, and we're not liking ourselves very much, then to get the feedback that, hey, maybe you can learn to dislike yourself uh, less. Oh, okay. That that seems more doable than to love myself if I'm really not liking myself. So so yeah, to dislike ourselves less and and work on practicing that. The more we practice that, then hey, we might find one or two qualities uh, about ourselves that we could say, hey, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not that bad of a person. Uh, may, maybe I'm okay. Maybe, maybe I could start to like myself, and and that's a powerful uh, process of transformation. So, in your book, the healing field, there are a couple of chapters that are very rich in the spirituality piece. Uh, one of them, uh, the the place that I just had you read before, um, there's a lot of that, of course, in that chapter because that's when. Um, Young Henry is asking, you know, where is God? Where is heaven? You know, what is it all about? So, you know, when when people read that book, they'll get the rest of that piece. And I love what his what his mother said, you know, and, and what he was able to glean from that. Um, but I also know that in another chapter, which is actually called Mystical Moments, um, there's a lot more going on that some people would have to suspend disbelief <laughs> or be open to um, quite a new paradigm of what can happen when you really drop out of your mind and into your heart and accept miracles. So rather than my talking about that, I would love it if you would read for us again. I know you like it when I do that. Um, I mean, when I ask you to do that. (laughs) Um, I would like for you to read out of the chapter called... Uh, mystical moments and i think we talked about you reading on page 131 
and kind of set context for us, and then let us talk about that after you finish reading. So, yes, the passage that you asked me to read, I'll put it into context because without the context, it's very easy to judge. And I know in my past, I had judgments about people that went to others that you could call, let's say, psychic or intuitive. So in my past, I had judgments about that, and I I was trained in um, first uh, engineering, very left brain, and then um, I shifted careers and went into medicine, very scientific, evidence-based, and it doesn't look at a person's subjectivity. Um, That's not in the language of science. So it took me a while to expand my condition belief system to not be so judgmental about my beliefs and then being more open. And so in my pursuit of of those questions that came up for seven-year-old Henry of uh, what's God and where's heaven and and other questions of why are we here and what is the meaning of this, Um, I um, was referred to a woman who had a very powerful story and experience and she was um, known in the community as an intuitive and so when I went to see her, um, we had um, an experience, and I was aware of my judgments as they were c- crossing my mind, and I just observed them and let them go. So now I'm going to read the passage that uh, you asked me to. And this is um, my experience with Mariette, and here we go. They chanted several times, continuing to stare at each other without blinking. Henry's breathing became more rhythmic and prolonged. His eyes started to water. At the same time, he noticed Mariette's facial features begin to shift, as if her face were suddenly more fluid. He wondered if his eyes were playing tricks on him. He stopped wondering and went back to experiencing. Her features again shifted, swiftly, subtly, and intermittently. The shading of her face changed and then took on the appearance of a photo negative. He noticed a ring of white light surrounding her head. All of a sudden, he saw a mustard-colored light spreading out in front of, on, and around her face. Then her face began to morph from a younger to an older version, back and forth almost simultaneously. Hanging sensation ran up and down his spine. His breathing slowed and deepened. He had no reference point anywhere in his mental software for what he was observing and experiencing. His body relaxed, and he was filled with a strong sense of inner peace. Oh, my God, Henry said. He had never witnessed or felt such an ordinary, uh, unordinary, extraordinary and profound experience. He shared with Mariette what he had been seeing. You are having a mystical experience, Mariette gently informed him as they continued their locked gaze. 
They both stared longer into each other's eyes. Henry continued to see Mariette's features shift in a mystifying way. She took a deep breath and then slowly handed him his watch back. Henry had nothing to say. He had no need to speak. He noticed something very particular about his watch. All three hands, the second, minute, and hour, were rotating counterclockwise. He stared at the timepiece in amazement. Look at this, Mariette, he exclaimed, showing her the movement back in time. The watch continued its march backward for several long minutes. Mariette smiled and shrugged her shoulders. Sometimes we get the grace to witness these things, she explained. Wow. My goodness. So the first thing I would like to mention is that it's, you say he had no reference point anywhere in his mental software for what he was observing and experiencing. His body relaxed and he was filled with a strong sense of inner peace. So my thinking is, if we are open to miracles and if we are open to all possibilities and we just kind of lean in and, and let it be, look at what can happen. Right. Right. If it was an earlier time in my life, I might have not had the space to set my judgments aside. I might have judged that to be uh, weird. Um, it wasn't happening. It could have uh, triggered fear and judgment, and um, that's not what happened. I felt a complete lack of fear. I felt totally at ease. My breathing, I had never experienced my breathing to be so um, wonderful in its uh, expansion of inspiration and its exhalation. That cycle of breath was so unhurried and so prolonged. It was just <laughs> breathtaking. And, and so um, that experience without that framework really took me out of my mind. And that was such a wonderful feeling. Well, I'd like to read the last part of that chapter because I think it speaks to what you were just saying. And your writing is just beautiful here. And it says, He had an inner knowing for the first conscious moment in his life. There was a God force, a creator, something extraordinarily magnificent, something beyond the perceptions of our senses. He didn't have to think, believe, feel, question, ponder, or wonder anymore. He knew. Without realizing it, he had left his mind and entered his heart. He was truly out of his mind. What a joyful feeling. Yes. That's so good. That is so good. Yes. And what a great uh, invitation for others to figure out how to get that same not that same experience, but the, the, the unbridled joy. And I think it has to be the full package, that mind, body, spirit. Uh, don't you? It has to be the whole package. Yeah. Am I being yes. too am I being too firm in that or I mean, you know, it's kind of a broad brush to stroke, you know, but I think it's I think it's right. Well that's integration. 
that's that's wholeness and you know I'm an integrated psychiatrist so it, it to me the word integration is integrating the multiple parts of of that uh, of what makes up who we are and it's much more in my experience than we judge or we believe uh, ourselves to be exactly and um I, I take I take great joy and pleasure, Deb, as a psychiatrist when I can say to uh, a patient or a client or uh, just to people in general, um when I say in order to heal you have to be out of your mind. So, you know, Psychiatrists usually it's about the mind and and uh, and um, solving the puzzle of the mind and and it's really fun to say no you have to be out of your mind and into your heart and people usually get that and they laugh. <laughs> well, let me tell you, having experienced as many conversations as you and I have had, and it has been my pleasure every time. Believe me. I find you. that you're welcome. I find that just like I have my mother and father in my mind kind of as a filter for some of what I'm thinking, a good way, in a good mm-hmm. way, I have you in my mind also. And it's really really comforting because when I realize that I have to step up and be with somebody, like I'm talking about with my friend that lost her dog today, you know, yeah. I can I can hook into my parents, I can hook into you. I can hook into my heart, and I kind of think it's all one beautiful thing that you already mentioned, and that's called love. And I would just like to wrap back around to that. And it's really important to understand and to notice it and to own it, and I I love it. Yes. Yeah, the Beatles sang it. All you need is love. It's certainly... (laughs) Um, a necessary ingredient in in our wholeness, in our healing, in our well-being. And again, as I've said, uh, and I will continue to say, what what I've learned that path of love is to work on unwinding the other parts that go, no, this is wrong, this is bad, yuck, ugh. When we can stick around with that stuff going on and quiet that part of our brain, then we increase the capacity for love, joy, and well-being. Well, I think that's why I asked the question at the front end. I, I think, if I didn't, I meant to. How do you find peace so you can sleep at night when things are so confusing and overwhelming? So, have we really answered that question well enough? Have we, you know, have you given us? All there is, <laughs> so, I want you to give me all there is. <laughs> so, How do I find peace? Because sometimes I, well, let me say it a different way. Most of the time I sleep like a baby. I sleep through the night most of the time. But when I don't, I cannot quiet what I call, I think I've mentioned before, the monkeys on the couch jumping up and down. I just can't quiet them. And right. there's no there's no peace and joy in that. Right. There there are times when peace can be elusive. There are times truly when our system is in shock and in crisis. The key is our system can get 
habituated to being in shock, survival mode, and crisis in a very chronic and prolonged way. That's very unhealthy, and that creates disease. So when um, we we need to be vigilant that our our minds don't seduce us into a well-worn pathway of of crisis and disaster and catastrophe on any level, big or small, because it's all relative. When we start to cultivate what I call the observing mind or the non-judgmental observer, then we can start to see things with a different lens where perhaps we're no longer catastrophizing, realizing, well, this has been going on for too long. Uh, Maybe at night when we're uh, up at night and going over the things that are incomplete, um, sometimes I suggest that people write write it down because when we write it down, it starts to lose its potency and it doesn't go round and round and round and round like it usually does in our head. So the pathway of of finding peace, I think, is to observe and have the awareness that our mind in autopilot does not look for peace. It looks for problems and problems to solve. And when problems aren't appearing to be solvable, then the mind goes in tailspin mode. So I like to teach that awareness, and and then I call it a, a quest of of waging inner peace, because we're all familiar with the term waging war. And I have seen in my career how our mind can wage war on big or small scales onto self or other. So in autopilot mode, um, our mind can be waging war. Now, when we consciously say, well, what if we start to wage inner peace? We've shifted the paradigm, and then it's practice, 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 awareness, 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 lather, rinse, repeat, do it again and we get more proficient at it with practice. I understand. And I think I also can extrapolate that if we do wage inner peace, we're probably going to improve job performance, interpersonal relationships, our physical health, our quality of life, um, our attitude about what's, you know, what's next, What's you know? It just sounds so much um, so empowering. Is empowering a word you like? By the way, absolutely love that word. And everything you said, all of the above, is true. Because when we're waging inner peace, we're not waging inner or outer war. And so when we're waging inner peace, part of that is um, healthy self-care. And when we're waging inner peace. We have a resonance that is attractive. Our energy field becomes more attractive, and that uh, opens doors for um, opportunities and more creativity and evolving and being in that thrival mode rather than survival. So, yes. 
wow, makes me want to take a nice deep breath, like I've done some good work here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, you know, I was just going to say, because um, it can be very, um, you know, frankly for me, just even thinking about how this all fits together sometimes is, is, is a tension. There, there's some tension there because I don't understand it all. It's not, right. it's not necessarily um, second nature sometimes. I mean, I, I have a my um, spirituality comes from long ago being a Baptist, you know, uh, going to church and then not going to church and then not being much of a Baptist and still being spiritual. And, you know, I'm wondering too, if, if that's, if that's true for a lot of people, you know, where you kind of, maybe you're raised one way and then you change somewhere along the line as an adult and then you're still thinking it through. And I think a lot of people are like, like I mentioned before, are seeking, not just yeah. not just us consciously seeking, but seeking the rest of the story. You know, what's what's the rest of the story? How do I get how do I get this all to play well together? <laughs> all these things. Right, and and we tend to be um, in autopilot mode, extremely impatient. How do I get there? How do I get yeah. there now? When is it going to happen? Why is it taking so long? All of that, all of that is judgment that slows down the process and keeps us in a trap of attachment to an outcome. So it's um, it's it's tricky, and when we have the the awareness of the traps and we're clearer and clearer, then we can get ourselves out of these mental traps. There are many, by the way, Deb, as you know. Um, <laughs> We can start to get out of those uh, mental traps sooner, quicker, and stay out longer. And then when we see ourselves uh, slipping back into it, we can get out quicker, sooner, and stay out longer. Well, I would have to also wonder if using the words that you love to use so much, simply complex in this in this realm, you know, it's simply complex to be integrated, to you know, have mind, body, soul integrated, spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's if it's not that, in other words, the opposite of that, you're talking about um, a mess, an absolute mess. It's like it's like a car with two wheels flat. Right, right. And that right. may sound like judgment, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. It's a mess if you don't have all uh, all of things that are available to you working well. uh th- it, yes when we're out of alignment sooner or later it's going to catch up mm-hmm. and it's going to cause it's going to be costly energetically and in many other ways uh, that affect our our lives so um yeah, when we start to find uh, tools um, to get out of autopilot mode and into conscious pilot mode, and we practice that again and again, um, we start to feel that empowerment, and that fuels our um, desire to continue to do that. It does require patience and persistence, and um, it's like uh, the the simply complex. The good news is the more we practice, just like in martial arts, um, if if you haven't studied martial arts, it can be well simply complex. 
I get the idea, and this is very complex, and it takes a long time, and then blah blah blah. The thing is, when we practice something like like uh, like integrated mind body spirituality, the neat thing is, it becomes more simple over time, and the complex shrinks, the simple expands, and then eventually. It's very simple. Oh. So practice makes, I was going to say perfect, but I'm not going to go there. <laughs> You're not going to oh, catch no, me. No, practice <laughs> makes, let's, let's try this word, simplification. Yes. Things are simplified when we when we practice. When we first start out, it's almost all complex. Now we need a simple um, part to, to hold on to, and so then we could start to see, yeah, yeah. There's both of these components, simple and complex. And then the more we keep at it, um, it like like pieces of of a puzzle that are scattered, it's it's complex. And as we gather the pieces and the components again and again, and we can assemble them quicker and sooner, then the simple uh, shines and the simple stays. And then it's more simple than complex when we do this again and again. But would you say that, you know, you can't see these pieces you can't see them. They are not physical. So don't you kind of have to have faith in yourself and others and faith in possibility and faith in your highest and best self in order to make all this work? Well, let me unpack what you just said because it's packed. Um uh, first, the first part, these things you can't see, I'm going to um, challenge that. And then the second part, must you have faith? Um, faith can be helpful, and faith alone sometimes is not enough. So the faith question is an important one. Um, these things that we can't see, I believe that we can see it more and more. So, for example... Emotions. Uh, emotions are a very abstract notion, and emotions um, affect our our body and, and affect our mind, and they're quite elusive. Now, if I talk to you about guilt grenades, or anger arrows, or shame shrapnel, it's starting to make what's abstract a little more concrete. And now we can see these energetic manifestations of emotions and how we could dole them out or receive them. We can uh, throw anger arrows or guilt grenades at other people and pelt them with shame shrapnel. Or we could be the victim of other people uh, expelling that to to us. So these are some things that we can see when we're shown and when we practice and as we as we get better at it uh, we we become more confident in our abilities it it opens up that portal to the intuitive or the spiritual and if faith wasn't there that's a good place for faith faith to come in so that's how i see it in a complexly simple or simply complex way 
Wow. Well, I love the guilt grenades, the anger arrows, and the shame. Oh, I started to say shame shrapnel. Shame shrapnel. Easy for you to say, Doctor H. Um, and what I'm <laughs> delighted about, in a odd way, is that that's the battlefield, and we're going to be talking about that in our next episode. We're going to be talking about from the battlefield to the healing field. And I have to believe that guilt grenades, anger arrows, and shame shrapnel will come up again in that conversation. Am I right? You, you bet that will come up again. And this, this is a nice segue to our next um, discussion because um, I have uh, even more um, what I call WMDs, Weapons of Mental Destruction, to show. And uh, when we could see the arsenal that we all have and, and how we use it inadvertently and how we receive it, uh, um, that's going to really change the terrain. And then we're going to know the contrast between what it's like to to be in or to get stuck in the battlefield and what it's like to shift, get out of the battlefield and into the healing field. That's really good stuff. Wow. Now, people would think that we did this on purpose and that we just kind of, you know, rolled through this hour <laughs> and then landed where the, where we really needed to land. <laughs> and I will tell you that we did not do it on purpose, but it is beautiful because this is exactly where we're meant to be. That's so great. It is so great. <laughs> so, wow. Hey, Mike, so, I would have to I would have to say that maybe spirit is moving us. Uh, that's what I'd like to say. <laughs> I think so because uh, my 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 teleprompter ain't working. <laughs> oh, that's too much fun. All right. Well, how about if we wrap this one up and let people know how to get hold of you or how to uh find you on on the great interwebs as they call it. And um, and then we'll call this one a, a day, and we've got another one scheduled actually right behind this one. So we'll we'll reconvene and talk about from the battlefield to the healing field, and get some more information about those WMDs that you were just talking about, which I just think is too good, too good. Excellent. So um, if people, I hope they'll be interested in the book, The Healing Field. It's available on Amazon or on our on my website howardrichmondmd.com and my last name R-I-C-H-M-O-N-D howardrichmondmd.com or thehealingfieldbook.com so um, I look forward to continuing our discussion it's always a pleasure um, to engage with you like this Deb well thank you so much and um, I would just like to invite people to learn what they can get more information from the website and wage inner peace at all cost because the cost yeah. is not that great. It's awesome. Yes. It's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I second that emotion. All righty. We'll see you soon. Okay. Bye-bye, Deb. Bye now. <laughs> 